If you have your Bibles, you can open them to James uh, chapter 4. We're going to continue talking about community. And uh, if you don't, you have it printed in your bulletin, so you're welcome to look at that. But I hope you will read along with me. Uh, We're going to read just these first uh, eight verses. And so now, hear God's Word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this... That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've been looking at these... uh, different passages that have to do with community. And I told you a few weeks ago that if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me as a pastor, I don't need to go to church to worship God, uh, we could pay our building off. It's amazing. That seems to be a, a constant theme. People want to make it clear, I don't need to go to church, I can worship God on my own. And you certainly can, and I hope that you certainly do. But there are things about corporate worship that we cannot ignore that are in the Bible. One is that it's commanded by God that we gather together one day in seven and that we worship our Lord. And it's just something that the church has always done. And when we gather together, not only do we sing our songs, but we confess our sins and we uh, affirm our faith. We go through a, a very common liturgy. In fact, you can look at almost any liturgy of the ancient church and all these elements are there. The church would come together, confess her faith, confess her sins, sing her songs, hear the Word of God preached or proclaimed in one way or the other, and then the highlight of that corporate worship would be all of us coming to a common loaf, a common cup, the cup of Holy Communion. And that's a symbol of our unity and our need for one another. And you just can't do that on your own. In fact, in our particular denomination, it's forbidden to us through our confessional standards and what we believe the Bible teaches for us to go out and just serve private communion without being in a, a, an atmosphere of corporate worship. That's how seriously we take the need for community. Now, church is not just community. Last night at our Halloween party or fall festival, whatever you want to call it, 
we saw a different kind of community. Our neighbors, our friends, people from other churches, other backgrounds, all gathering around to play games and have fun together and eat some delicious brisket and ribs and hot dogs and candy. Oh my gosh, I saw kids with bags of candy so heavy that their parents couldn't lift them. I mean, it was was amazing. That's what God has created us for. We were made for community. But you can't read very far in your Bible. In fact, chapter 3 is all you get uh, through your Bible before you find the, the attack by Satan against community. And in Genesis 3, he goes right at the heart of destroying community. Community between God and man. Community between mankind and the creation itself. Community between the man and the woman, the husband and wife. All that broke down. And all we have to do is look around us in our lives and we see the wreckage of broken lives, broken community. And we live in a time when our culture here in the United States is very polarized, very antagonistic. People are angry. And maybe some of the things we're angry about are legitimate. But when it starts to make its way down into the fabric of the church and tear churches apart, that is where the pastoral ministry, that's where my job starts to get critical. I have to step in and do everything I can and say everything I can to draw attention to those threats to community. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about the threat of syncretism. You see, there's our culture's changing all the time. And those pressures that are on all of us to conform to culture can make us syncretistic. In other words, we try to make friends with the outside world, with the gods of this world. And the church has always struggled with that. The church doesn't know what to do with those threats. So sometimes we go and we hide, we hunker and bunker, we get down in caves and and, uh, in, in monasteries and places like that so we won't have to hear or see any of the evil around us and we get very afraid and we tremble. Or the church has capitulated and just become like another a political party, another part of the, uh, the world, and, and there's no distinction. And I've told you repeatedly over all the years I've been here that you will never find balance somewhere in the middle between those two poles. It's not to be found. The deck of life is always shifting. Balance is only momentary synchronicity. It's only a moment and then it's gone again. And so we can't be looking for balance. But what the Bible tells us is you don't need to balance on that continuum. Leave the continuum. Get off of that spectrum. And rise up. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. And there you will find your true power. And sadly, the church has not done that very well. So my job, Dawson's job, the job of our elders and our ministry leaders in our church is to continue hammering away at that need for unity and community around the person and work of our Savior Jesus. Today we're going to talk about the threats to community from within. So syncretism comes to us outside and tries to get us to conform to something or someone else. 
But these threats that James are talking about are born inside of us. And so, in chapter 3, which we didn't read and I'm not going to say much about, he talks about speech, speech ethics, how you speak and how you talk. And he says the tongue is a fire. It sets your course of life aflame. So how you speak and how you talk uh, is, is the direction that you're going to go. In other words, your life is going to follow your speech. And he warns us that that road can often lead to hell. In chapter 3, he talks about two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom that is earthly, and then there's a wisdom that comes from above. The earthly wisdom is unspiritual. It's demonic. It's disorderly. It's contrary. It's vile, he says. It's a vile practice. And all, Look, folks, I don't know, care what you do. You turn on any source of input, media, from songs to internet to Facebook, Instagram, it doesn't matter. Choose what you want. And what you hear is anger and vitriol and condemnation to an extent that is frightening. And some of the loudest voices are coming from the American church. We can't have it. It's got to stop. And so the threats to community can come from outside. They can also be born inside. Inside of us. So look at verses 1 through 3. We'll go through these quickly. He says, your passions are at war within you. What causes these quarrels? What causes these fights? And then look at the progression that James lays out in his letter. He's talking to a church... In fact, all of these New Testament letters that you find in your Bible were written to churches that were struggling with problems, the same problems we have. Look, the Roman world was no different than our world. In fact, our world is a lot better than their world in many, many respects. They face the same problem. And he says, what causes these quarrels and fights? He's talking to the church. Why are you quarreling and fighting? And the progression he lays out is, look at it, self-orientation. He says, your passions, it's the Greek word hedone, from hedonistic. Your internal passions, your hedonistic passions to satisfy yourself over everything else is at war within you. See that every human being, we have this tension inside of us. Well, if I do this, it might, you know, this is where uh, political ideologies break down. Libertarianism. Some of you may be libertarians. I don't want to offend you, but I'm going to. You know, libertarian says, well, I should be able to do anything I want as long as I don't hurt anybody. Which is a ridiculous statement because everything you do affects everybody else. Every breath you take affects everybody else. We don't live in isolation. God did not create the world to be in isolation. And this self-orientation, whenever you find yourself moving that way, and you feel the tension of being at war inside, that's a red flag for you, for me. And look what it leads to. Self-orientation leads to unfulfilled and frustrated expectations. You desire, and the word desire is not 
just desire, it's epithumia. And epithumia means it's an over-desire, it's a lust, it's a craving. It's something that actually takes control of you and moves you. Your desires, you desire things, but you don't have them. You see, how many, think, just think in your life, how many things, you could be a little kid, and you didn't get that piece of candy, or you didn't get to eat the whole bag of, you know, 20 pounds of candy. Whatever the case is, our, our, our desires, our expectations are not meant, and you don't have. You see, you desire, but you don't have. You're frustrated. And out of that comes wreckage and ongoing frustration. Look at the next line. You murder and you covet. Now, he's not talking about literal murder, but he is coupling murder and coveting because think about it. When you want something so bad that, you're, that it, it fires up the anger within you and you've got nothing but, but bad things to say about people and your spouse and your family and your work and your government and your leaders and your pastor and everybody else. Jesus said that murder, that is murder. Anger in your heart is equal to murder. So when you confess, you don't just confess, oh, I was angry. No, I have killed that person that I'm mad at, that I'm angry at. I've murdered them. I've put them to death. Now, I'm guilty of that. And I know that many of you are as well. We have to be honest. These things can drive you, an unrealized expectation, something you thought you deserved or that you should have. And it didn't come to pass. And so it just boils up inside of us. We think it's righteous indignation. But I only know one person who really ever was righteously indignant about anything. You know who he was, right? Jesus was the only one that was angry and did not sin. When we are angry, very often, it's mixed with some sin. So whatever is firing your jets and getting you going... That's a therapeutic, uh, a symptom of a disease that's there laying underneath. And it's a threat to our community because we're murdering, we're coveting, we want what somebody else has. And then finally, he says, God sees this. Look at the, look at how the progression goes. You don't have because you don't ask and you ask and don't receive because you wrongly spend it on your passions. See, no one else may know. In fact, I would guarantee you that we are very good at hiding those things. So no one will know, but God does know. He sees it, and it says He opposes the proud. You see, there's an attitude that fills us where we think, you know, I'm right, and I deserve and I should have, and my expectations are thus and so, and I should get, I'm a good person, I've done all these good things, I go to church, I listen attentively to the sermon, I sing the songs, I actually give money to the church. And so for that, I should get something. There's a transactional relationship that we make based on our pride transactional relationship based on our pride. I've done this. I should get this. So I'm going to scratch God's back and He should scratch mine. Folks, this happens to 
everybody. In fact, almost every religion. doesn't matter. It's just not only Christianity. Any religion. We all have this idea that we can get into a transactional relationship with Almighty God. And what that is, is that is based on our pride, thinking that we have some currency that we can come and bring to the table, and we can lay it before God, and He'll look at it, and He'll go, wow, that is really impressive. You put $20 in the plate today. My goodness, I'm just overwhelmed. And God doesn't do that. He sees not, not the amount. The amounts don't matter. The consistency. What matters is what is going on inside of us. This is where the danger lies. The threats to our community, the things that cause quarrels, cause us to be, have ill will towards other people in our churches. The result, look at, look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Now look, James, he's rough. He's a rough preacher. He, he would have maybe two members in his church. And probably one of them would be his wife. And only there because he makes her go. And maybe one of their poor children. And as soon as the kid gets old enough, he's going to run away from this guy. But not really. Look at how he goes at the... He go, these are believers he's talking to. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's saying, don't you see what's going to happen if you don't stop? It's going to take control of your life and eat you from the inside out. And therefore, when you go... You know, church can become a burden. It can become odious. To people, he goes, "Oh man, I tried going to church, and worse people, worse everything. It was just the worst. I had the worst experience, and on and on and on and on, because they went there with adulterous hearts." When I graduated from seminary, it seems like a lifetime ago, but I was forty-two years old. I went back to school later in life. And, and uh, I got out of seminary and I thought church was going to be a breeze. We were going to go in there. Everybody was going to fall at our feet and say, oh, what great preaching this is. And the churches were going to be filled, especially if I was there. It wasn't going to be an a, a empty seat. People were going to marvel. They were going to praise your name and all that other stuff. And all that was was making God an enemy. How? Oh, serving Him. Giving to Him. Giving everything up for Him. And patting ourselves on the back. Now that's a personal confession, I hate to say, but I think you understand. We all have those things. And what he's saying is that is nothing less than adultery. You're making, friend, you're making a God of something or someone... Martin Lloyd-Jones said, idolatry is anything that occupies the place that God should occupy alone. What that means is, you don't bring anything into His presence. You don't bring stuff with you and say, look at this and look at this and look at this. He already loves you. He already loves everything you've done. You're like a little kid who draws those crayons. You know, I've had them on my, when my boys were young. They draw these pictures that were all crayons and squiggly and scribbles and the colors didn't match everything. And what did we do with them as parents? What do you do with them? You put them on the fridge. And you dare anybody to come in and say, eh, what's that ugly peg? You know, you... No, no, no. And it's not because of the intention of the kid. I don't know what my kids were thinking when they were squiggling those lines. The reason it's worth something is because God says it's worth something. 
It's because the value that we pour into those squiggly lines, that's where it gets its worth. And once you start to realize the only thing, my worth is not in what I own. We sang it this morning. What do I have that I can bring? The one thing I can do is trust Him. I can trust Him. And I can, I can crush as best I can my selfishness, crush it down, and fight it with every breath. And here's the, here's the ground that, that I think is so marvelous about James. You know, you read James and it's a little tough. He's, he was, a, he was a, a, a pretty hard case. But you see his, his heart, I think, nowhere better than these verses right here. Look at 5 and 6. He yearns jealousy. Now when he says he, he's talking about God. God yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What he's asking, what he's saying is God jealously jealously watches over the Spirit that is in us. He's jealous for you. He doesn't want you giving your heart to another lover. To an adulterous relation. He doesn't want you to give your heart to anything but to Him alone. And then from that, He will make everything else out there in your life lovable, wonderful, glorious, your children, your marriage, your job, your friends, even your suffering will work for you instead of working against you. Instead of tearing you apart, everything, even suffering, even pain, grief, a sense of loss, all of that, all things will work together for you, for your good. If you trust Him, if you put your heart there. You don't make God number one and something number two and something number three. That is a terrible, terrible pattern of life. What you do is you make God all in all, central to everything. He is the core and center of your life and let everything else find its orbit around Him. Now folks, that's good preaching. There you go. Amen. I know we're Presbyterians, but come on. I mean, you, you know, really think about that. There's no number two. God never says there's number two. He says there's me and me alone. And you order your life around me and then I will, I will order everything else around me. And, and your life, even though it may stink at times or you suffer or whatever, right up to the last breath you draw into your lungs he promises he will never leave us or forsake us he is jealous over the spirit that he makes now i know that jealousy is not one of the things we like about god but it should be that he is je- our jealousy is always mixed with something self-protection or aggrandizement or selfishness if we're jealous over if we're jealous over our kids let's say we're jealous i don't want my kid to get into this or that or the other thing and and it's and righteous i love my kid i'm selfless are are you listening to yourself my kid better not start using drugs my kid better not look at the internet too you know my kid what what 
you, it may be 99% your love and your care for your children. But what's that other 1%? And I would argue it's more than that. It's you. Oh my gosh, what if somebody finds out? What will they think of me? What will they think of my parenting? My kids have got to be always be uh, uh, tucked up and, you know, uh, buttoned up and got things going on. I've got to. Well, you'll destroy them. The church is full of wreckage of that kind of, of parenting. God's jealousy over you is unlimited and it is pure. It's not mixed with anything else. It's His love and grace towards you plus nothing. He doesn't look at your failures and your sin and say, okay, I'm going to love Chuck in spite of. No. That's crazy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He commends, He demonstrates His love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died. He had pity. He had jealousy. He had sorrow and compassion for the estate that we were in. The sinful estate of brokenness and shame and guilt. And so He does something. 100% does something to remedy that condition. Not in spite of, but because of His love and His grace. That's God's jealousy. Folks, you start burning that down into your soul, it changes everything. Everything. It makes Christianity glorious and fun and enjoyable. Even when hard times come, you can still have joy running underneath the surface like a powerful current. Even while on top on the surface you're weeping and mourning and your heart's broken and the doctor's diagnosis is laying there on your, on your lap and you're going, I'm not going to make this one I'm not getting through. Or you get divorce papers. This, not going to have. No way we're going to remedy this. Or you get your bank statement from the bank. You look, oh, whoa. Or a pink slip, terminated employment. Whatever it is. You can sorrow. You can grieve. You can be broken about it. But underneath, there's that current flowing. A current of strength and joy because you know God loves you and is jealous over you. He's more passionate about you than you are of yourself or your own kids or your own family. Now, my boys are grown. I've got grandchildren now, and I know that I look 25, 30 years old, but that's an illusion. And I've, I've been through a lot with my kids. They've been a lot, through a lot with me. But when they got in trouble, and they did, and they sometimes still do, Marty V and I would get down on our knees and we would, we would say just one, one prayer. Lord Jesus, You promised. You promised. We know You love them more than, you love, than we could love them. We know Your heart. To, we know. And so we're going to trust You until the day we die that our children are going to be found by You no matter where they are, no matter how much they're shaking their fist in Your face. They're baptized. The sign and seal of Jesus Christ has been put on them. And they're safe. Now, whether they're saved or not, I don't know. I only know the promise. And the promise is... They're mine. 
Your children are mine. Your future is mine. Your life is mine. Everything, your loves, your cares, your concerns, your delights and your joys, all mine. Find your heart there. And nothing can touch it. It's in a treasure. It's in a vault that can't be assailed by anybody. No thief can take it. No moth can corrupt it. No rust can eat away at it. Nothing can happen if you put it there with Him. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with us? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see God's kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you're stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. In other words, you're putting that punishment into a treasury the same way you could have put your heart in a treasury, a safe place. Repentance doesn't impress God. Repentance is is our response to His love and His grace and His kindness. It's not to get off the hook for something we did wrong, but to, but to say something to our heart. You're wrong in there. You see that you in there? You're wrong. He's right. Therefore, I repent. And I turn to you, O Lord my God. Now, how do you do that? Well, look at 7 through 10, and, and I'll, I'll finish with this because this is, if you've never read, and I, I've brought this up, I don't know, I, I bring it up sometimes a couple times a year. If you have not read Thomas Chalmers' sermon, uh, the, the Expulsive Power of a New Affection, you can get it online, it's a PDF, and it's, it's written in the old style, you know, sentences that are two pages long with no punctuation and that kind of thing, but... Listen, it's well worth it. The expulsive power of a new affection. Look at how James um, explains it, and then I'll talk about the the expulsive power of a new affection. In verses 7 through 10, just so you know, he gives 10 words of it uses ten verbs in an imperative mood. In other words, he's, he's commanding. There's ten commandments in these verses. And there are three indicatives or promises. Ten commandments and three promises. See if you can catch them. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Come near to God, He'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter into mourning, your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up. Here's His promises. The devil will flee from you. He will leave you. God will, Satan's exiting, God will come near to you. He'll come close to you. And He will lift you up. In other words, if you're down, He'll lift you up. He'll come near and He'll run the devil off. Thomas Chalmers said this is an expulsive power. This uh, process that you go through. It pushes 
things out. You see, you can't just spend your life tearing bad things out of your heart because they keep filling up. John Calvin said our heart's an idol factory, so it's like whack-a-mole. You know, you pull one out and one pops up over here and you whack that one down and it pops over here. You know, that's our lives. And it's okay. It's good for us to do that. It makes us strong. We don't like it. We'd like to get to that place where those moles quit coming up, but they're there. So get your Nikes on and go after them. Here's what Chalmers says. It is impossible for the heart to cast the world away from it. We're not constituted in this way. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. See, he's saying you've got Jesus Christ has got to become the biggest thing in your life. Not God in some abstract form, but the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have to have somebody that you can relate to. Otherwise, God is just a ball of light up there and the Holy Spirit is a, is a, a cloud moving. You have no way of getting a hold of Him. But if you have Jesus, you can see. He says, touch me. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Eat with me. We're going to do that in a minute. Come sit with me. Dine with me at my table. You're mine. I'm yours. You can have fellowship, communion with this God. And how do you know? How do you know He's going to do that for you? Because every one, of those, every one of these ten imperatives Jesus did, He submitted Himself to God. He resisted the devil. He came near to God. He washed His hands. He was pure. He, he, he was not double-minded. He grieved. He mourned. He, changed. he was the, the weeping prophet channeling Jeremiah. He, Jesus was the prophet that wept over Jerusalem. And he humbled himself before God. He did all those things. He did every one of those ten things. And the devil kept coming back. And on the cross, God did step back. And Jesus was indeed lifted up. But not up and out. Not up and out of misery. Not up and out of grief and sorrow and pain. He wasn't lifted up and out. He was lifted up and into the depths of hell for you and I. And that's the affection that James is talking. That's the affection that Chalmers was saying. That's the thing that has got to capture our hearts, fill the windshield of our life, and, and every other thing is measured by that. By that person, that man, and what he did for us. Then we can endure anything. Our expectations can be unmet and we're still sad. We know the secret of contentment that Paul was talking about. We know we can lay hold of him. And nothing, even if everything is stripped away in our life, no matter what it is, we know he will never leave us or forsake us. Now in America, we're... We are rolling in money, rolling in abundance. We don't even know. The poorest people here have more than enough. But on Saturday, we got a call from Nancy Guthrie, who's with the Gospel Coalition. Some of you know who she is. And, and uh, 
can't tell you all about it, but Nancy has, there's a, we have 10,000 Afghanis out of Fort Bliss. 10,000. And there's a pastor and his young wife and two little babies and 14 other people with him that escaped from Kabul with the clothes on their back. So we got, you know, Nancy Guthrie sent some money and we went and bought a bunch of stuff and we took it to another church that we're partnering with and they're going to get it on to Fort Bliss somehow today or tomorrow. So I know that talking about these kinds of losses and pain and grief and all of that is, doesn't always hit our lives the way it does some others. But know this. Know this. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not even that. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, we know this is not easy. We know that even Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. He begged that He wouldn't have to go into that place of complete and utter loss. None of us have experienced that, Father, and never will. Not like Him. So we ask You, Lord Jesus, please rise up in our hearts like a banner. Strengthen us, O Lord, by the power of Your Holy Spirit. And as we come to Your blessed table, feed us in our hearts by faith that we can become one with You and You with us in Holy Communion through the power of Your Spirit. We pray these things in Your mighty name. Amen.